And so uh, we are now in what is the, the full-blown uh, Easter season. And I want to encourage you to celebrate Lent if you haven't already started it, is you can start it now. And Lent is just to encourage you to give something up as a reminder that, that Christ has given up his life for you. And really what, what we're in right now is what is the Easter season. Now, there's Easter as an event, right? The day of, there's a lot that happens that day. Maybe you do the egg hunt. Maybe the family gets together. You make the, the ham or whatever it would be. So there's the event of Easter. But I think what is often missed is the season of Easter. And where we get to celebrate the event, but if all we ever do is celebrate the event of Easter, what we might miss is the sweetness of the season. And I think a lot about Christmas, you get this with Christmas, right? There is the event of the day, the 25th. It's big, it's crazy. Presents are bought and wrapped and the, 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 the stockings are hung and whatever it would be, there's that, that day, it's a big event. But there's also this season that leads up to Christmas, and we're, unfortunately, in the church, we're, we, just, we just were like, oh, it's the event of Easter. It's the, it's the resurrection. But if all we do is we celebrate the event of the resurrection, I think we miss the sweetness of the season. And for the Christian, I think this part of the sweetness of the season is all that goes up into this idea that although the resurrection is a celebration because the, the, the grave has been conquered, but then if you're a Christian, you also mourn the fact that the, the grave was required, Right? That death was required, sin was required for like there had to be some sort of death that could take place. And so if we're all we're going to do is celebrate the season, sorry, celebrate the, the event, then we miss the sweetness of the season. And so we're going to celebrate both the event and also the sweetness of the season. And in the mornings on Sunday mornings, we're going to be as we gather on Sunday mornings. We're going to be looking at the conversations between God the Father and God the Son. And so this idea that God the Father and the God the Son, that they are actually talking with one another. And all of, our, all of the sermons are going to come in between the, the moment of uh, Palm Sunday, the day in which Jesus entered into, into Jerusalem, and Good Friday, which is the day that Jesus was crucified. On Palm Sunday is the day that he comes in. They're singing Hosanna, Hosanna, which means God save us. Hosanna in the highest, God save us. That's on Sunday. Friday, there's a different chant. Crucify him. On, on Sunday, O come, O come. On Friday, take him away. And, and, and the, the, the juxtaposition of those two events so close is, is I think, just one of the, the, the craziest emotional roller coasters that could have ever been experienced by Jesus, the disciples, and everybody else involved. And so we're going to be looking at these conversations between the Son and the Father in these moments. And so this morning we've got one, and uh, next week, and actually for three weeks, we're going to look at Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. It's his longest unbroken prayer to the Father, from the Son to the Father. And so I want to encourage you actually just to start reading it. We're going to spend three weeks in it. I want you to start reading it. And then we're going to spend the, the week that leads up to Easter, Palm Sunday. We're going we're gonna to cover Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then on Good Friday, we're going we're gonna to cover Jesus' prayer, the, son's, the, the prayers from the Son to the Father on the cross. And so 
for you to know what's happening is you need to know is that what's happening around in Jerusalem this time is that they're getting ready to celebrate Passover. Now, we've celebrated Passover here before and we'll continue to do so. But Passover was this event that started way back, way, way, way back in the day, if you know the story. Back when the Israelites were in Egypt as slaves. And as the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, God says, I want Moses, I want you to go down there. I want you to get my people and I want you to bring them back to me and out to the land which I'm going to show them. And so Moses goes down. Pharaoh says, no, Moses, there's plagues that come. There's the, the you know, the Nile turns into blood. The, the locusts uh, come. The, you know, it, it's, it's, things start dying. The sun goes dark. And then there is the one, the, the last plague. God says there's one more plague coming. And this plague is going to be the firstborn is going to die. All the firstborn males are going to die of everything. Of, of, of man, of livestock, everything. Firstborn male is going to die. But Jesus, but the, sorry, God said to Moses, on this night what I want you to do is I want you to tell, tell the Israelites to, to have a feast. And I want you to tell them to, to kill a lamb and then to eat the lamb and to put the, the, the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. And that night when the Spirit of God comes through, wherever the Spirit of God sees the blood of the Lamb on the doorpost, those people will be spared of death. In which you, maybe your Jesus bell is like, whoa, that sounds a lot like Jesus. You go, yes. Why? Because it's the fulfillment. Jesus is our Passover Lamb. He's the fulfillment of the Passover meal. And so all of this is happening is this is when this is happening in Jesus. When he goes to die, dies on Passover, when the lamb is to be slaughtered, is that Jesus is slaughtered. He is the path, the whole that's the whole imagery behind everything is that he is our lamb. And so Jerusalem's beginning to swell. People are starting to show up. And that's where we start our story. So if you have your Bibles with me, with, with turn with me to John chapter 12, we're going to start in verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So now you can start to see a little bit of Jesus' celebrity status. By the way, he had already just recently had healed, uh, sorry, raised Lazarus from the dead. And so that caused quite the stir when dead people start walking out of tombs. People start asking questions and want to know who did that. And so, and in fact, it's interesting because earlier in Jesus' ministry, he raised somebody from the dead. But what does he say? Don't tell anybody about this. Because he knows what will happen if word gets out that he can raise the dead. But when he raises Lazarus, it's this huge public event. And so people start talking. The word spreads. And now the Greeks have heard. The big deal about the Greeks, you know what the big deal about the Greeks is? That they're not Jewish. They're, they, they, are, they are Gentiles. And now they have come to Jerusalem to worship for, for, the, for Passover. But they're here now. And now the Greeks are coming to talk to Jesus. They want to sit down with them. And so they, they go to Philip. You can see the celebrity status, right? They're going to Philip. Say, Philip, can you get us an audience? Can you get us an audience with Jesus? Get us a sit down. 
And Philip goes to Andrew. And then both Philip and Andrew go to Jesus and say, basically, Jesus, the Greeks have come calling for you. What do you want to do? I filled that part in, but that's the idea. The Greeks have come calling. What do you want to do? And notice Jesus' answer. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, to which we go, oh, that sounds great. But if you just think about this for a second, that's a weird answer to the, to, like, to, 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 to the, the request, right? I mean, you'd think like, Jesus, the Greeks have come to, to, to sit with you. You think like Jesus would say something like, well, tell them to go away. I'm not seeing anybody right now. Or, yes, have them come in, sit down, let's talk. He says neither one of those. In fact, he even tells us, he, the answer was, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus, the Greeks are here to see you. Oh, okay. That means that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, this is interesting because he's been talking about the hour coming and all throughout John. But the hour has not been upon us at all. If you go back to Jesus' first miracle with the turning the water into wine in John chapter 3, is that, is that his mom says, basically, do what he says. Turn and, you know, they ran out of wine at the wedding. And then, so, you know, Mary goes to Jesus and basically says, this, solve this, solve the, solve the lack of wine problem. You know, he says to her, my hour has not come. And then, when he meets the woman at the well, and the woman at the well is talking about the Messiah coming, and when the Messiah comes, where will worship be? And then Jesus says, the hour is coming. He also says, it's upon us. And then in, in John chapter 7 and John chapter 8, that they, the Pharisees, the people, they, they want to arrest Jesus, but they can't arrest Jesus. And the reason why it says they can't arrest Jesus is because his hour has not come. And so then we get to, to John chapter 12, and what do we hear? Jesus says, Jesus says, the hours are here. To which I think to the, the disciples, this has got to be a shock. All they've heard for three years is the hour is coming, the hour is coming, the hour is coming. It's not the hour yet. The hour will be here, but not yet. And then all of a sudden for the, for, for the disciples to hear that for three years and then to say the Greeks are looking for you. And then Jesus' response to say is the hour is here. The hour is here for the Son of Man to be glorified. I think maybe about a couple who's getting ready to have their first baby, Right? And for nine months, all of the talk is, oh, when the baby comes, when the baby comes, when the baby's here, well, after the baby comes, when the baby comes, then the, and it's like all of, this, the, all of these scenarios will play out. But then something happens when the moment of labor comes upon that couple where everything's just thrown into chaos and like this anxiety and this hope and this fear all comes together because so long we've been talking about it and all of a sudden it's like, it's upon us. It's like, we got to go. It's, it's like, it's now. And you think about that. Now that's nine months. Think about being pregnant for three years. You're like, no, 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 no. The hour has come for what? For the Son of Man to be glorified. Now I'd ask you the question, what does it mean? What's Jesus referring to when he says the Son of Man is to be glorified? I'll give you a hint. It's not the resurrection. I'll give you another hint. It's the crucifixion. It's interesting, isn't it? 
Because I think if we were going to write the story, if I was going to write the story, if you were going to write the story, and we would say, this is the moment for glorification. This is the moment for, 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 for God to be glorified. What we would say is that it has got to be the resurrection. I mean, that's the, out of the grave. There's the celebration. It's the victory, the final victory of, of life over death. That sin has been, uh, as we would say, well, sin was conquered on the, on the cross, but like it's made, it's made clear at the grave. It's the victory. Everyone's celebrating and crying. This is wonderful. But that's not what he says. When he says that I'm going to be glorified, he's referring to the cross, the crucifixion. And I'm going to submit to you this morning that Jesus was more glorified at the cross than he was at the resurrection. Like, well, maybe they're equal. No, 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 no. No. He was most glorified in the cross. How is that possible? This is what the story's about. And so it's interesting that he says, the Greeks have come looking for you, and the Greeks has triggered this other response. Oh, the Greeks are looking? Yep, yep. So not just the Jews, but the Greeks are looking for you now too. And he goes, the hour is here. The hour is here for the Son of Man to be glorified. Why? Because Jesus never came just for the Jews. He came for the world. Now the Jews were seeking to kill him. Other Jews were just seeking him out to make him king. And now the Greeks are just seeking him out. But what we know is that the world is coming for him. So Jesus has come for the world And now the Jews and the Greeks are coming for him. And then Jesus says, so I've come for them. Now they are coming for me with different motives and different ideas. But they are coming for me. And so now the hour, the hour, whoa, the hour is upon us. we, We didn't even plan that. That just happened. (laughs) That's cool. Uh, But the hour is upon us. So he goes on. Then in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant also servant be also if anyone serves me the father will honor him now this is a weird interaction if i'm just being honest right jesus the greeks have come for you okay the hour has come time for the son of man to be glorified for like wheat has to die in order to bear fruit and whoever loves his life is going to lose it. And whoever hates his life is going to, to get it. And everyone's got to follow me. I think the disciples must have been like, it's like a simple yes or no would have been just a, just a fine answer. Yes or no would have been just fine and appropriate. But what does he give us? He, he actually gives us, and we see this in not the only place we see him say this, but probably I would say, well, certainly the most famous paradox in Christianity if you want to lose, if you want to gain your life, you need to be able to lose it. But if you try to keep your life, you're, you're going to lose it. If you're trying to keep it so hard, you'll end up like you're going to lose it. But if you're willing to lose it, you'll actually keep it. 
It's like one of the greatest paradoxes of Christianity, and I would probably submit to you as well, it's like the greatest paradox of the English language. This weird thing. You want to get your life, you need to be willing to, to, to let it go. But if you try to hold on to it tight, you'll never find it. And what he says here is he goes, for those who love their life are going to lose it, and those who hate their life are going to find it. To which you may say to yourself, hey, I was thinking on the way over here, I hate my life. I hate my life. <laughs> or maybe on Friday you're thinking like, I hate my life. I hate my, I hate my job. I hate my life. I just hate life. And then you come here on a Sunday and you say, man, those who hate their life, that's a godly thing. Maybe you go, man, I'm a little more godly than I knew. In fact, I'm a lot godly because I hate my life a lot. Not what he's saying, by the way. Not what he's saying. I think what he's saying a lot is if, if what you think is life is about are things like your comfort, your convenience, your happiness. And what you're doing is you're making decisions of your life to go after comfort, convenience, and happiness. You're going to lose the very thing that you're looking for. You'll never, ever find it. But if you're willing to let go of things like your comfort, your convenience, and your happiness for the sake of the gospel then you will find something that your life is worth living for. It's interestingly enough for me is that people who think to themselves, I hate my life, much like maybe you think to yourself, I hate my life. It's actually not a godly thing, but it's because it's, it's too worldly of a thing. Because what you're saying in those moments and what I'm saying in those moments when I go, I hate my life. What we're saying is I want things like comfort, convenience, and happiness, and they seem to be evading me. I want the things of the world, but they seem to be evading me, and because they're evading me, I hate life. And what Jesus says is, Jesus, I think Jesus is saying is, if, if, if you're going to make your decisions by things like comfort, convenience, and happiness, you're going to miss the point of life. And by the way, Jesus is saying this right before he goes to the cross. If Jesus was going to make his decisions based on things like comfort and convenience and happiness, it would have never led him to the road. It would have never led him to the road of Calvary. And then what he says is that, and by the way, you need to follow me. You need to come on this road. And then he has this this prayer in 27. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. This is the prayer. Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come for this hour. Father, glorify your name. Father, glorify your name. And so he says, well, what, what am I going to do in this? Because his soul, he goes, now my soul is troubled. Now my soul is troubled. It's interesting because we think about Jesus being troubled. But I think often when we think about Easter, we think about the victory. Jesus is not troubled. He's victorious. And even when we think about Jesus, most of his life, we just see him as like this happy-go-lucky, like, hey, I just love you guys. I know you guys are broken, but that's not the pictures we see in the Scriptures. In fact, it actually tells us about, about Jesus is that he's a man of sorrows. He grieved a lot. He was sad. We think those are anomalies. Those are, those are more actually identifiers of his character in the, in, in, in the incarnation because of what he was going through. 
My soul is troubled. I don't think we think about that when we think about Easter, a troubled Jesus. I think often when we think about Easter, we think about more in a, like a sports analogy, right? We think like Easter is like the Christian version of like, it's the bottom of the ninth, and the Christians were down by one, but there was one on, full count, and Jesus is up to bat, and like, Jesus is like, I got this. And calls his shot, right field, home run, game over. But that's not the story we get. We get the story of a troubled Jesus. A troubled Jesus, and that trouble led him to the cross. And so when he says, he goes, my soul is troubled. And so he says, what should I say in this moment? Father, save me for this hour? But like, this is the reason why I came. It's interesting because you ask people, like, why did Jesus come? Why did he come? And people say all sorts of things. Well, he came, you know, to do miracles. No, 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 that's actually not why he came. He did miracles while he was here, for sure. But that's not why he came. In fact, he didn't come because other people couldn't do that. In fact, we have stories in the Old Testament of other people doing miracles. So it wasn't like Jesus was the only one who could do the miracles. We even have stories in the Old Testament of, of prophets, like, raising people from the dead. And so he didn't come to do the miracles, to just to walk on the waters, to feed the 5,000. He didn't come just for that. That's not his purpose. They go, oh, Jesus came just to, to teach, to be an example for us. Yeah, we've got, we've got other preachers and teachers in the Bible that are examples for us. That's not why Jesus came. Jesus came is what he tells us from start to finish. Jesus came to die on the cross. That's why he came. And the reason why he came to do that and not the other stuff is because other people could do the other stuff. But he was the only one who could die on the cross. And so that's why he came. And so he's like, what am I going to do in this hour? Ask God to, to, to the Father, for the Son to, to ask the Father for the one thing that I came to not do. And we're going to see sort of like a little bit of this in the Garden of Gethsemane, by the way. And am I supposed to ask for that? And then he says... Father, glorify your name. So think about this. Once again, what is he talking about? The crucifixion. He said at the beginning, it's time for the Son of Man to be glorified, referring to himself, then the crucifixion. And now he's saying, Father, glorify your name in the crucifixion as well. And then, then the action happens. The action happens in, and then 28b, then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. And so then he, he so Jesus turns in prayer and says, all right, so what am I going to pray? Then he does this prayer. Father, save me from this hour. He goes, but this is the reason why I've come. Father, your name be glorified. Then, then this thunderous voice from heaven comes and says, I have glorified it and I'm going to glorify it again. Now, this is how we picture God talking, isn't it not? Is it not like the, like the Hollywood version of God and we get a little bit, yeah? Like, we think about God speaking. We think about clouds parting, thunderous voice from heaven. 
And then we read a story like this and we go, he does that. He actually does that. And you go, yeah, yeah, he does. But he doesn't do it a lot. And a lot of times we, we think, we say, I want God to speak to me with that kind of clarity. I know he can do it. And so maybe you even pray, like, God, just, I want to hear an audible voice. Just be really clear about this. I know you can thunder, you know, how, it doesn't have to even be a thunder, but still just audible would be nice. And so we go, well, he does it. And I go, yeah, he does do that. But that's not how he tends to do things. He doesn't tend to, to speak in this way. He doesn't tend to speak in this way. He tends to speak in, in other ways. In, in more quiet ways. And by the way, there is a direct correlation between the clarity of what God says, like, like how clear he says it, and the importance of the message. So the more clear he speaks the message, the more important the message seems to be. And he seems to do this in places where the, the, basically the outcome of humanity is in balance. It's, a, it's weighing. He doesn't seem to be doing this to things of like, what job should I take? What color car should I buy? Even things of like, maybe who should I marry? Right? These are big things. These are like, and even in Jesus' life, we see it happen three times. We see it happen as his baptism, his transfiguration, and we see it happen then uh, here in this moment. Glorify your name, Father. And he says, the response is, I have glorified it, and I'm going to glorify it again. Now, he's referring, I have glorified it. Jesus, I've, I've glorified, I already have done that through your ministry. Through the things that you have done, you're the Messiah. I have already glorified my name. And I'm getting ready to glorify it again. Once again, what's he talking about? The cross. Not talking about the resurrection. He's talking about the cross. To it should be troubling. Because if I were to ask for you, do you want God to be glorified with your life? You would say yes, especially on a Sunday morning in church. But yeah, oh yeah, yeah. God, if I was going to preach this this morning, say God wants to be glorified in your life. You'd go, yes, that's what I want. I even prayed this morning to say, God, would you be glorified in and through me? And I think a lot of times if we're just being honest, what we want are for things to go generally really well for us. You know, we get, we get the good job. I got hired. Glory be to God. You know, we got the new house. Glory be to God. You know, you, you want your, your kids to be, to be, you know, well-educated and athletically talented, emotionally adjusted, productive people of humanity, and then when they do, you go, oh, may God be the glory. May to God be the glory. And if I'm just being honest, really what we want, when we think about it, we want God to glor- be glorified in our lives. What we want are for things to go really, really well for us. Like, really well for us. And then, like, people will look at us and go, man, things are going really well for you. You got the house. You got the kids. You got the good job. You got the education. How did you do it? In that moment, we can say, glory be to God. It's all thanks to God. And and hear me out. It's true in that moment, by the way. But if I'm just being honest, that's what we want. 
We don't want God to be glorified in our lives at all costs. And what he's saying here is, I have already glorified it. Walked on the water, glorified it. Raised Lazarus from the dead, glorified it. Fed the 5,000, glorified it. And by the way, I'm getting ready to glorify it again. And this time, it's going to be on the cross. And so, that's the response then. In verse 31, because the question is, how is that going to be true? And this is what he says. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And so we would say to ourselves, well, how is Jesus going to be glorified? How is the the Son going to be glorified on the cross? And how is the Father going to be glorified on the cross? And then I said the crazy thing, I think he's more glorified on the cross than he is the resurrection. How is that even true? Right? And so we see this here. He goes, this is how it's going to be true. The judgment of the world, judgment of Satan, and all people are going to be drawn to me. Glory be to God. Now, it's interesting because right now, like, judgment is like this really negative thing in our culture. <sighs> Don't be judgy. You're too judgy. Judgy is one of the great vices of our culture right now. And so a lot of times what we do, even within Christianity, is we go, well, we're just going to, like, where there's some things about God that we're just going to kind of sweep under the rug, and judgment is going to be one of them. We don't need to talk about it. But the problem here is that Jesus says that's actually in the judgment of the world is that I will be, I will be glorified. It's interesting because even as we take something like the cross, like the image of the cross, do you know that the image of the cross is sort of like this universal thing of, of hope, although some of that is changing, but like this idea of hope? So even when there's like this, this tragedy, people will bring crosses and leave crosses. Or you think about it, there's some sort of natural like tragedy. You know, so, you know we, we see maybe a paradise or there's, 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 you know, something burns down or there's a flood. And you know, they're always looking for like this, you know, this building fell down, but what didn't fall down were these two beams and these two beams connected. They form a cross and they take a picture. And it's just this idea of hope. But in the cross, we also see the sign of condemnation. Right? Do you know that the cross was not always a sign of hope? In fact, before it was a sign of hope, it was the sign of condemnation. It means you've been, you've been, you're guilty and you're condemned. And for the Christian, we always have to be able to look at the cross and see both the, the condemnation and the forgiveness. That we were, we were guilty, we are guilty, but in Christ, right? The, the cross reminds us that we are guilty, and in the cross also reminds us that we are, we are forgiven. And so God is glorified in both of those. And then he says the judgment's on the world and the judgment is on Satan as well. I'm going to cast him out. I think he means cast him out as the accuser. And so God is going to be glorified because his sovereignty over Satan is going to be exerted and shown for everybody. It was like, I'm more powerful than him. I've always been more powerful than him. And the cross is going to prove that. 
He thinks he's going to destroy me on the cross, and the cross is actually going to destroy him. It speaks of the power of God, the knowledge of God. And then he says this thing of like this, and then all will be brought to me. It's interesting to say like this idea, right? What's going to draw people to Jesus? We would think, oh, his teachings will draw people to him. His miracles, people would go, how miraculous is that? And in both those, he goes, nope, that's not what's going to draw people to him. Jesus says, what's going to draw people to me is when they see me lifted up. Now, once again, this is counterintuitive to what we would think. And we may even say, no, it's, it's like the miracles. That's going to draw people. It's interesting that, that people would coming, they were coming to Jesus after he would feed the 5,000 and some of them would come to him. Do you know what he would say to them? You're just here because I fed you. That's the only reason you're here. You're here for the show. You're here. You're here for what I can do for you. But that's the only reason you're here. If you were, like, had a friend or like somebody, maybe somebody at work, and you go, you're at, you, you think to yourself, you're only coming around because you know I can do something for you. And you want, like, you're pretending like you're my friend, but that's just because I'm providing something for you. And I just have this, this feeling that once I stop doing that, is that you will no longer come around. And then you stop doing that, and they no longer come around. And you go, yeah, you weren't, like, you were never a friend of me. Like, I was always a commodity to you. But there was no relationship you just came around because of what I could do for you. And so I think what, what, what Jesus is saying is like, they, they're not going to be drawn. They'll be drawn to the show. They'll be drawn to the provision. But they're not going to be drawn to me because of that. What, when they see me on the cross, they'll be drawn to me. Why? Why is that true that they'll be drawn at the cross? And I'd say, well, that's true for the same reason that Jesus is most glorified, that both the Son and the Father are most glorified in the cross than anything else. And the reason that is true is because whenever God's character is revealed, he is glorified. Wherever God's character is revealed, he is glorified. And by the way, this is not just true of the cross. You read the Old Testament stories. You read any of the other New Testament stories. You even think about your own life. Wherever God's character is revealed, he is glorified. And the more clearly his character is revealed, the more glorified he is. And that's why I can say something like he's more glorified in the cross than he is the resurrection. Was he glorified at the resurrection? Absolutely he was. Was he glorified when 5,000 were fed? Absolutely he was. But he was most glorified at the cross. Why? Because his character was most clearly revealed to us at the cross. I mean, think about the cross. It's God's wrath poured out. It's his anger, his wrath poured out. But it's also his forgiveness poured out. It's his justice against sin, all while extending mercy. It's his hate of sin while while also extending love. It's one of sacrifice. 
And so we see all of this, all of these things. And so, so, so his character is most clearly revealed to us at the cross, which means that he is most glorified at the cross. Every time God's character is revealed, he is glorified. And so what he says here is that my, my character is going to be more, most clearly revealed at the cross. Why? Because that's where we see it all come together. And because of that, he is most glorified. Now, for you, going back to the question, do you want God to be glorified with your life? Yes. And you think to yourself, how do I do that? You go, well, truth be told, like the way that it's always been done, that God's character would be revealed in and through you. That's what it is. And that's even what we're saying when the blessings are coming, that God is a good God, a blessing God. He takes care of his creation, all those sorts of things. We're saying, here's the character of God. But the problem is within Christianity often, what we do is we go, here's the character of God at our peaks. But when we're at our valleys, we're like, don't, 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 don't look at that. So when we're up here, we're like, hey, look at me and look what God is doing, how great it is. But whenever we're in the valley, we're like, don't, don't look at me because it's kind of embarrassing. And if you look at me now in this moment, you may get the wrong ideas about God. And I go, well, here, here's the problem. Is that whenever God's character is revealed, he is glorified. And that's going to be true of you in your peaks, your valleys, and everything in between. Do people need to know that God is the provider? Absolutely they know, need to know that he is the provider. That, 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 that when God answers a prayer, does he, do people need to know that God is the kind of God who answers prayers? Yes, they need to know that. But they also need to know that God is still faithful even if he doesn't answer a prayer. As much as they would love to have God as the provider in surplus, they also need to understand that he's also the sustainer and sometimes will just help you endure. You see, what we do is at our peaks, we say, God, you know, God, may you be glorified. But our valleys, we think to yourself, God, there's no way you can be glorified. And I go, That's not true. Why? Because every time his character is revealed, he is glorified. And God is looking to reveal himself in and through your life, on your peaks, your valleys, and everything in between so that he may be glorified. And this is why we can say at his cross he is the most glorified, even though many people would say it's the valley to which Christianity says, nope, it's the peak because he's been most glorified, his character most revealed. And so my prayer for you and for me as Easter approaches and as we, we think about the glory of God, that, we, that he would be glorified in our lives. But be careful with that prayer. By the way, I would be careful with lots of prayers, but that's certainly be careful with that prayer. God, may you be glorified. Because, like I said, what we want to do is we want to say, God, let me be glorified. Let, let you be glorified. And here are the seven easy ways in my life in which you could be glorified. Boom, 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 boom. And when those happen, 
glory to you. And maybe God's saying, that's nice, that's cute, but let me give you the seven ways in which I want to be glorified in your life. And it's like boom, 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 boom. And so wherever you find yourself, wherever you find yourself in the story, God is wanting to be glorified and revealing his character in and through you to his people. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for all that you do and who you are. We thank you that your character has been revealed to us in Jesus. We thank you that it was most clearly revealed to us at the cross. And because of that, that's where you are most glorified. Guys, know that, that we are in stories right now, in peaks and valleys, and everything in between. God, may your character be revealed to, to us and through us. May we know you as, the, the, as, as provision and surplus, but may we also know you as the sustainer. May we know you as the one who brings unceasing joy, but we, may we also know you as the one who brings like, unparalleled comfort. May we know you as the God who celebrates with us, but we, may we also know you as the God who mourns with us. May you be glorified in all of the places your character is revealed. That is true for us individually, for us as a church, and for corporately as the world. We love you. We pray for these things in your name. Amen.